You can go ahead and be turning to Revelation chapter 12. You know, I didn't ask Parker to lead us in the battle hymn of the Republic. And I would say that that seemed to be completely out of left field until you see how the Spirit of God puts things together. Because let me tell you, I don't think there could have been a more appropriate song that we could sing, especially when you consider this subject of the kingdom of God as it is opposed by the kingdom of darkness. And uh, what a wonderful story. And so I'm so appreciative for his sensitivity to the Spirit's leading. But kingdoms in conflict. You know, when I was growing up, uh, my two sisters, and I've got two younger sisters, but we would often, especially in the summertime, you know, find a clover patch somewhere out in our, our yard or, or on the property where we were, wherever. But we'd like to lie on our backs and kind of look up at the sky and uh, look at imaginary shapes in the clouds. Did you ever do that? You know, our minds are really imaginative. <clears throat> Even to this day, we adults like to see certain shapes in the clouds. Anita and I might be driving down the road and on the horizon, maybe the sun's setting and it's setting behind some clouds and those clouds have some sort of shape. And I'll say, Anita, do you see that, uh, that dinosaur right there? You know, it's just right there. And uh, she says, I don't know, it doesn't look like a dinosaur to me. It kind of looks like a horse, you know. Shakespeare even alluded to this kind of thing in his play about Mark Antony and Cleopatra in which uh, Antony has a line which says something to the effect that sometimes we see a cloud that's dragonish. Inevitably, we see some monster in the clouds, especially when we were kids, our imaginations would run wild. And though it's imaginary, there's an element of truth to it when you consider the storyline of Scripture. Are we out of our minds as believers when we say that there's a malevolent entity, being, who's behind so much of the conflict in the world? We're not, when you know what Scripture says about the enemy and the nature of the enemy. And so with all of the atrocities that seem to flood our daily news, one might be tempted to question God's control and his care, and yet we know that when Jesus died and when he rose again, he declared the ultimate complete victory over sin and over evil and over death. And so though the battle has been won, we still live in a world where the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness remain in constant conflict. And we see and experience the effects of this conflict every day in our lives, you know, the world and the culture we live in has a way of processing life and trying to explain existence and trying to explain difficulties in life. But the world's explanation is rooted in unbelief. And in many ways, the world is like a man in a dark room trying to explain its layout or describe its layout. And without the light, it would be a futile attempt. That's not to say he can't make some general observations based on his other senses, but without the light, even what he's able to observe is imperfect. And so when it comes to understanding why things in our world are the way that they are, without the intervening grace of God, we would be totally in the dark. 
we wouldn't understand the purpose behind our existence. We'd be incapable of discerning what the real problem is in the world. And we'd be without any hope for living. But we know that God's word sheds light on all of those issues. And it tells us that there's a whole lot more going on around us than simply meets the eye. We consider the world and the conflict in the world. The world as it is now is under the influence of a dragon. And this is the source of man's conflict. So again, Shakespeare was not far off base when he talked about clouds appearing dragonish. <laughs> you look at the thunderheads of world events and they appear ominous. And why is it that they appear that way? Well, it's because there is an enemy. And this enemy is revealed in this 12th chapter of Revelation that we're going to look at tonight. So let's read. I want to read all 17 verses of Revelation chapter 12. And then we'll come back and we'll just work our way through this passage. Verse 1 says that a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she's to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. I'd underline that in my Bible if I were you. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time 
and times and half a time. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. Now the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. And then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now, some translations include that last sentence there in verse 1 of the 13th chapter. So I want to speak from this subject tonight, kingdoms in conflict. You'll remember from last week that we left off with the ministry of the two witnesses described in the first part of chapter 11, and then the seventh trumpet judgment that sounded at the end of chapter 11. And so as we come now to this 12th chapter, we find indeed that there is a dragonish cloud that seems to loom over human history. Now keep in mind what's going on here that this is indeed a section like we've seen earlier in Revelation where John takes time out and he goes back to explain something, uh, to explain events, to explain circumstances that inform why things are happening the way that they are. And so you can think of this cloud, this dragon, uh, as, as a massive thundercloud that threatens conflict and war on a scale beyond our own imagination. Even tonight, the war drums are beating around the world. They have been in Europe. It's dominated the news. It's been something perhaps that you have been watching with keen interest. People have asked the question, what's going on in the world? And it's merely just a symptom of something that's going on, folks, behind the scenes. It's the way it always is with human conflict. And you're not going to be able to understand human conflict outside of an accurate understanding of what's happening in that invisible, unseen realm. This is something that we've seen in multiple places. We saw this throughout the study of Daniel, the fact that there's just the things that we see are influenced oftentimes by the things that we don't see. The conflict that you experience in your life as a believer. Uh, again, who is behind so much opposition, persecution to the will of God in your life, but the enemy who wars against you, who militates against you. Now, we know God is sovereign. God's in control. But let me tell you something. We have an active enemy. And so this conflict here that's described, it's not merely a conflict among rivaling nations. Uh, we're not talking about one nation invading another. This is not a tribal conflict. This is not simply war on earth with army against army. But what John sees is a war in heaven itself. Dragon versus angel. A kingdom of darkness waging war on a kingdom of light and yet shining its light against the serpentine shadow of all of these ominous events that are described here, there is this symbol of hope. There's a woman and her newborn child. And so it's to these symbolic images that we need to really give our focus and our attention. So notice first with me the context revealed. If there's a conflict in this chapter. Well, what's the context of all of that? 
Again, John's reaching back. He's, he's being shown something, and, and we tend to think linear. We tend to think chronological. But, but bear in mind the fact that this 12th chapter is telling a story. It's telling you that this war that's going to come to a head in the last days, it's really a long war against God that goes all the way back to primordial time itself, even before the dawn of creation itself. So the context, you'll notice John begins by saying that there was a great sign which appeared in heaven. So again, this is another instance where the scene kind of zooms out to give a big picture before it zooms back in on a specific event in time. So by way of context, we are told specifically that this is a sign. So this is a new scene here. We were to borrow from the world of theater. We're dealing with the new scene. The scene changes as a great sign appears in heaven. That word sign, the word that's translated there describes a word uh, that means mark or symbol. Uh, it has special meaning. It points us beyond the symbol itself. So that word sign is very important because what John sees is pointing to a much greater reality. It's the same word that the disciples use uh, when they ask Jesus this question in Matthew 24. Tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Of course, Jesus goes on to give the Olivet Discourse and talk about uh, circumstances related to the tribulation. So what John's going to describe here in this vision involves symbolic characters that point to real people and events in history, both past as well as the future. So this sign or symbol points to a greater reality. One person has explained it this way. <clears throat> says that uh, Ray Steadman said that Revelation 12 is like a scene in a wax museum of three-dimensional figures frozen in place at the climactic moment of a dramatic event. You ever been to like a Ripley's Believe It or Not wax museum or something like that? And you see those figurines and characters and sometimes you'll see characters from specific scenes in movies that you've, you've, you've watched. And they're striking that pose from some dramatic scene in that, and it, it's like, yeah, it encapsulates in that image, you know, that scene and what that scene describes. Well, it's kind of the same thing that's happening here. John sees this picture. I'm going to show you the picture. This comes from a stained glass window from a, a particular parish church in England. But if you can see that sort of depicted in stained glass, which by the way, you know the stained glass windows in history, that was one of the ways that the church discipled its people. Because you know, we've got access to the Bible. About every one of y'all have a Bible open in front of you. It wasn't always that way prior to the printing press and prior to the explosion of print materials. I mean, you know, how did the church disciple its people? Well, oftentimes in those cathedrals and in those churches in, in you know, I think in particular Protestant England, you had the use of stained glass. And so you go into a church, you see the stained glass. Well, here you have the creation story depicted by way of picture. And then there you have maybe the story of the flood depicted in stained glass picture. And over here, you've got the New Testament, stories from the New Testament. See, we were doing PowerPoint before we had PowerPoint. <laughs> but there's something about a picture that kind of helps us grasp the truth. 
Some people are auditory learners. They learn by hearing. Other people are more visual learners. They like to see some kind of a picture. So much of the language in Revelation is picturesque, isn't it? I mean, vivid language used to describe these events. So here's this picture in this, represented in this stained glass portrait of a seven-handed dragon. and I mean, the very things that the Apostle John is describing here in Revelation chapter 12. All right, so context tells us that this is a sign, but then notice it's a story. A story. Now, the immediate context, if you go back to the end of chapter 11, you'll notice that it's within the context of the seventh trumpet that's being blown. And so you revisit what's said at the end of chapter 11, go back to verse 15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, their loud voices in heaven, saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And then all the 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God, they fell on their faces, they worshiped God. They say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Now what phrase is not spoken there? that was spoken earlier, who is, who was, and is to come. Why is this phrase left off? Well, because it's describing what's going to happen when, he, when he's here. He's here with the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet is going to initiate those events associated with the final judgment of God that's going to usher in the kingdom of Christ. And Christ is going to establish that kingdom when he appears, when he comes. You've taken your great power. You've begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. The time for the dead to be judged, for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So don't miss the big picture of what the seventh trumpet is announcing. And it's summarized in this cry that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So it's describing this great transfer of power from wicked and sinful humanity in bondage to Satan to that of Jesus Christ and his saints under the sovereign authority of God the Father. And in order for this change to come about, here's what's got to happen. The kingdom of darkness has got to be confronted. It's got to be judged. And the kingdom of light will then shine its brilliance all throughout the earth. And when that happens, it will be the fulfillment of the prayer that the church has prayed and that the people of God have prayed. Thy kingdom come. What is it that should motivate our prayer lives? What is it that we long for? We long for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus to come. We long for righteousness to be established upon the earth. So this seventh trumpet introduces the final period of wrath that's going to be symbolized by these seven bowl judgments later on in chapter 16. We'll get there. John's going to get there. But before, he's going to describe some events in chapters 12 through 16 that sort of let you in on what's been going on going all the way back to the beginning, what redemptive history is all about, and he's going to introduce some key figures who are going to be uh, players in end-time events who will oppose the kingdom of Christ. And so when it's all said and done, it's going to culminate in the millennial kingdom of Christ on the earth. So this is the context. 
The kingdom of light, dispelling the darkness of the kingdom of the evil one. That's the context of this 12th chapter. Now, you cross the threshold to chapter 12, John's given a sign, and that sign is symbolic. So that's the context. Notice the combatants who are involved in this conflict of kingdoms. You know what combatants are. They're those who are engaged in the conflict itself. So who are the combatants? Well, John says this great sign appears in heaven. He sees a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, on her head a crown of, a crown of 12 stars. And specifically, he says that she's pregnant. She's crying out in agony, birth pains. She's in the process of giving birth. And so while he sees that, there's another sign that appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, and then this dragon is described in fearsome, vivid terms. I mean, seven heads and ten horns, and on his head, seven diadems. Kind of reminds me of something out of them Godzilla movies. You remember those? I mean, man, what a figure here. What a, what a character. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So here are the combatants in this cosmic conflict that's being described in this chapter. You've got, you've got a mysterious woman. You've got a wicked dragon. And you've got a child, a woman, a dragon, and a child. These are the combatants. So someone says, well, who are their identities? Can we identify who these symbols are referring to? Well, let's begin with the woman, verses 1 and 2. Now, she's been given this interesting description, clothed with the sun, moon under her feet. On her head is a crown of 12 stars. So if this is a sign that points to a bigger picture of reality, then who or exactly is this mysterious figure, this woman, referring to? That probably doesn't surprise you that throughout the centuries there have been all kinds of ideas and theories that have been offered as an explanation. Uh, Roman Catholicism has said that this is Mary, the mother of Jesus. In fact, that stained glass portrait you know, that comes from, it's actually a Catholic church, uh, the, the, it's, it's the parish church of St. Mary, and so that's the, the focal point in that particular church. So it's that interpret. this is Mary, that's who they see this as being. But then you've got others who've tried to identify the woman with the church itself. Now that doesn't make sense, because the church owes its existence to Jesus, not vice versa. Jesus doesn't know his existence to the church. So both of these explanations fall away short. This is not Mary. Neither is this woman uh, symbolic of the church. But I believe that the way the woman's described tells us who she is and who she represents. Now, this is, this is a reference to something from Genesis chapter 37. So why don't you keep your finger here in Revelation 12 and just go to Genesis 37. Long about verse number 5. You're familiar with this, with the book of Genesis, you know that at this point in Genesis 37, it's telling us the story of Joseph. Now, what do we know about Joseph? Well, Joseph was a dreamer. And Joseph had these dreams that he was 
He was relaying to his brothers, and let's just say they didn't think real fancy of him for it. Uh, Genesis 37, 5, Joseph had a dream when he told it to his brothers. They hated him even more. I mean, they were envious of him to begin with. His father made a coat of many colors and was the father's little pet. I mean, they were jealous and envious of him. But he says to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, good grief. Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you really going to rule over us? You're the runt. Not the youngest, but the next to the youngest. I mean, you're not going to rule over us. And so they hated him more for his dreams and for his words. Now, listen to this. He dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But then when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father Jacob rebukes him and says to him, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? So Jacob understands what this dream represents. The sun, the moon, the 11 stars represented the entire clan of Israel, Joseph being the 12th. So those symbols then make it clear that the woman in Revelation 12 is representative of Israel, all of whom are descendants of Jacob. So the woman is Israel. So what we find here in the sign of the woman clothed with the sun, the moon at her feet, 12 stars as a crown, this is a picture of the nation of Israel, which again comes to prominence in the last days. Now pay attention to how, how also she's described. John sees that she's pregnant. She's crying out in the birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now, let's look at this second combatant here. The enemy combatant in this cosmic conflict is the dragon. Verse 3 says that there's another sign which appears in heaven and it's that of a great red dragon. And here's the description of the dragon. He has seven heads, ten horns, seven diadems on his heads. With his tail, he sweeps down a third of the stars of heaven, casts them down to the earth. Now, I believe it's a little bit easier identifying who this dragon is. Lest there be any confusion as to his identity, we're plainly told who he is in verse number 9. And notice the way that he's described there as the great dragon or that ancient serpent, the devil, Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So really four key descriptions as far as the evil one is concerned. Each description has something to do with his character and his intentions. The fact that he's a great red dragon that speaks of his sinister, evil character uh, the fact that he's the ancient serpent, that identifies him with the serpent in the Garden of Eden who deceives Adam and Eve. There's a serpent who slithers into God's garden to deceive our first parents. He's the devil. He's the one who slanders the people of God. He's Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He's our adversary. So this dragon then, he's the enemy combatant in this conflict. 
the ancient foe of God's people, the one who fell from heaven at some point in the far distant past, even before creation itself, the one who slithered into God's garden to deceive our parents. Now notice verse 4 says that this dragon's poised in a certain way. So as he can stand before the woman to, who's about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour the child. So his intention is to keep the birth from happening, to destroy the child as soon as the child is born. So who's this third combatant in this cosmic conflict? Well, the child. Who is this child that the dragon so hates? Well, verse five says the woman gives birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron. <laughs> and we know who he is too, don't we? So no wonder the dragon hates the child because the child is destined to rule the kingdom that the dragon has tried to usurp for himself. You remember how God cursed the serpent after the fall of man there in the Garden of Eden. And here's the promise, Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So is it any wonder why you cross the threshold from Genesis 3 into Genesis 4, and, the first, and I'm going to preach on this Sunday, but Cain and Abel, and the fact that when Cain is born to Eve, she's rejoicing. She's saying, I've, I've gotten a man from the Lord. She thought that Cain was the answer to the promise back up in Genesis 3.15. Here's the one who's going to vanquish the foe that got us kicked out of the garden. <laughs> of course, we know how that played out. But Genesis 3.15 represents this messianic promise, the first messianic promise of the Bible. And the whole story of the Bible flows out of that verse, folks. The seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. That's what God's people were looking for all through the Old Testament. So since that declaration in the garden, Satan sought to prevent the birth of the male child. He moved Cain to kill Abel. He moved Pharaoh to drown all the Hebrew baby boys in the Nile River. He moved Saul to try to kill David multiple times. He moved the heart of wicked Queen Athaliah to destroy all of the royal heirs of the house of Judah. Uh, it was this serpent who moved Haman to plot genocide against the Jews in the book of Esther who moved Herod to murder all the baby boys in Bethlehem, according to Matthew chapter 2. So you see these conflicts? You, you, think they're, you think they're unrelated and you think they're just coincidental? There's an evil dragon behind them, and the intention of this dragon is to prevent the birth of this child who's destined to rule the nations. So the dragon's intentions are these. Destroy the male child, Destined to rule the kingdom. That's why the devil hates Christmas so much. Because the incarnation of the Son of God marks the end of his kingdom. It explains all the conflict that's happened in the world of humanity. Now, you read what John says here. The dragon is not successful 
in his attempt to devour the child. Verse 5 says the woman's child was caught up to God and to his throne while the woman fled into the wilderness. And so there she has a place prepared by God in which she's to be nourished for 1,260 days or three and a half years. So what you have here in just six verses is the cosmic conflict between the serpent, the kingdom of God, as it's explained in terms of human history and where it's going to kind of come to a head in the final three and a half years of human history known as the Great Tribulation. Now you understand? That 1260, that's a number that we've seen previously. It's a number that we see in Daniel, three and a half years. The seven-year tribulation period, the second half of that's going to be a time of unparalleled tribulation for the nation of Israel, the woman. And the reason for that, John is told here in this 12th chapter, it's because the devil is going to come down, having been cast out of heaven once and for all, knowing that his days are numbered. And he unleashes fury against the woman who gave birth to the male child. Now someone says, well, where's the church? Notice there's no reference here really between the birth and the ascension of the child and the time in which the woman flees into the wilderness. <laughs> it's interesting. That word caught up there translates a word harpazo. It's the same word used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17 that says... We're going to be caught up. Rapture. So I believe that this is further proof that the church is going to be raptured before the tribulation begins. Listen to me. What is the church now in this church age but the body of Christ? When, the, when, when Saul of Tarsus was so persecuting the church and you know the Lord kicks him off his mute and he's in the dirt, and he's blinded. What is it that the Lord says to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, who was it that Saul was persecuting? The body of Christ. <laughs> so it means to be a part of the body of Christ, you are, you are identified with the head. You are in Christ. We are identified with Christ. We are the people of God. So I find further evidence the church is going to be raptured before the events of the tribulation. But the child, the child that's being referred to here who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron, this is, of course, the Lord Jesus. Now, let's talk about the conflict itself as it's described before we close. Verse 7, war arose in heaven. In fact, you'll notice that in the chapter, there are really two great conflicts being described. You've got one in heaven, and then you've got the other on earth at the close of the chapter. And though these are distinct, you've got two battles that are closely related. Now, notice some characteristics of this conflict. First, it's an angelic conflict, verses 7, 8, and 9. There's a clash in the spiritual realm between the dragon and the archangel, Michael. 
So this war arose in heaven. John sees Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, the dragon and his angels fighting back, but he's defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So John witnesses Michael, the archangel, He's the one who's described in the 10th chapter of Daniel, the one who's associated as the defender of God's people, intimately associated with the nation of Israel. John sees Michael defeat the armies of Satan in heaven and cast them down to the earth. So, so this battle then, now scholars have kind of been somewhat divided on whether or not this is reference to Satan's original rebellion or is this something that's still yet to happen? I believe that this is something that's still yet to happen. So even right now, what that means is that we know that the devil has some type of limited access to the throne. And that shouldn't surprise us. What does he do in the book of Job when, he, when he's constantly accusing Job before God? You know, when the sons of God appear before, before God himself, Satan himself is there. He's the accuser of the brethren, which means right now, what is it that he's doing? He's trying to accuse you and me as those who are the, the church. He's trying to accuse us before the throne of God, accuse us uh, and, and, and uh, defeat us, come against us. So this is a future conflict that's being described that John sees that's going to happen at some point in this future tribulation period. There are some Bible teachers who even suggest that it might happen at the same time as the rapture of the church. Chuck Swindoll says it this way. He says, popular ideas of Satan imagine him as the king of hell, ruling over demonic servants and damned sinners, but this is not true. You ever heard anybody say something like that? I'd rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. Well, there ain't gonna be any reigning in hell, chief. But in our own day, uh, Dr. Swindoll says, Satan has limited access to both heaven and earth. He continually brings charges against the saints, accusing us before God in heaven for the wrongs that we commit on the earth. So there's this angelic conflict. The result of that conflict, John sees that the devil and his angels are cast out of heaven once and for all. And so this is an answered conflict. It's an answered conflict. When the enemy is cast out of heaven, notice that there's a heavenly chorus, there's a loud voice, there's a hymn that's sung. Verse 10, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So this is cause for celebration then in heaven. Four wonderful realities that come as the result of this event. You've got salvation, power, the kingdom of God, the authority of Christ. This has come. Again, it's the very thing that's declared with the seventh trumpet at the end of chapter 11. This is what, this is what it's going to take. This is what's going to happen. And yet even now, spiritually, we can live in the reality of these truths. Salvation is mine. Aren't you grateful salvation is yours? The power of God is now in operation in and through my life. My citizenship is of the kingdom and I live under the authority of Christ. And yet there's coming a time when these realities will become physical realities upon the earth. That's what we long for. That's what's going to happen when Jesus Christ comes again. And then you pay close attention to verse 11. 
This is an important verse for us because I'm telling you, it has something here that we need to keep in mind, especially as we face spiritual conflict in our lives. How did they conquer the evil one? Listen to me. Oh, this is so good. They've conquered him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives unto the death. One person has said that this shows how the people of God from any age can overcome the evil schemes of Satan as he attempts to deceive us, neutralize our effectiveness for the Lord, and immobilize us with the poisonous emotion of guilt. Let me just kind of take a time out here and just kind of make this very practical for you and for me. I think there's something you need to remember with verse number 11. When you're engaged in spiritual conflict, listen to me. Number one, you need to trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. You ever experienced the accusation of the enemy in your conscience, in your emotions? I know I have. How is it we handle that kind of thing? Well, John says of these believers who experienced the accusation of the enemy that they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. That's true for them. That's true for me. That's true for you. How is it that the enemy's overcoming my life? Not through the blood of Jesus. What is it that's overcome the accusation of the dragon? It's the blood of the lamb. <laughs> the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed me of all my sin. That's why Romans 8, 1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you're saddled with a weight of guilt... If there's something that just, you just can't get past in your life and you say, oh, pastor, I've asked God a thousand times to forgive me. That's only 999 times too much. Because on the basis of, of, the, of the blood of the lamb, you confess your sin and ask God to forgive you, he's forgiven you. He's washed you white as snow. And you need to live in that confidence. And then notice something else. I'm, I'm to trust in the blood of Jesus, but... I've got a story to tell. I'm to tell my story. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Ray Steadman says it this way, all around us, the places where we work, the places where we live, our schools, our families, there are people who struggle under the heavy burden of sin and guilt. They're under the spell of the evil one, under the delusion of his lies and accusations. Their lives are lonely, empty, fearful. Shame lurks in the hidden chambers of their hearts. And you and I can help them by telling them our story. Amen. By telling them the gospel story and the unique story that you have as someone who's come to know Jesus Christ. You have a testimony, and a testimony is a powerful thing. These saints of God overcame the evil one by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. And then one third thing to consider is that you need to put everything on the altar of obedience. Trust in the blood of Christ. Share your story and put everything on the altar. Look at this last part of verse 11. They love not their lives even unto the death. That is, they didn't shrink back from the threat of death. They loved Jesus more than anything, even more than their own lives. They were willing to give everything up for his sake, whether it be reputation, status, possession, life itself. They'd rather die than go back on their allegiance to him and bring shame to his name. And folks, that's how we overcome the enemy.
the blood of the lamb, the word of our testimony, and not loving our lives unto the death. That's what discipleship is, by the way. This is really good. It's practical. One last thing to see is this angry conflict, verses 13 through 17. The enemy, the dragon, he's going to be cast out of heaven once and for all. And that's a good thing. It's cause for celebration in heaven among the saints. But then notice, you know, it's a terrible thing for the, for the earth. Because verse 12 says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So this victory over the dragon brings rejoicing to heaven, but intensified conflict on earth. And the devil is enraged by the resistance of those who remain faithful to God. He knows his time is short. He knows that in three and a half years from this particular moment, he's going to be bound and chained and cast into the bottomless pit. So what's he going to do? He's going to move quickly. And the events of the last days will begin to increase in severity, which is why the last three and a half years of the tribulation period is described as the great tribulation, and specifically for the nation of Israel. And notice he targets his attack against the woman. He pursues the woman who had given birth to the male child. Verse 13. How's he going to do this? Well, chapter 13 will tell you the sinister, wicked form that he takes. It will be through the Antichrist and the Antichrist's beast empire that he persecutes Israel. But there's a believing remnant that God's going to protect. And remember, the whole point of the tribulation period itself is to bring Israel to a place of repentance and faith. And God's going to preserve them Uh, Notice it says in verse 14, the woman was given the two wings of the eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she's to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. That ought to remind you of something from Daniel because that exact phrase is used in Daniel to refer to that last three and a half year period of the tribulation. The serpent pours water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. Perhaps the armies of Gentile nations, this is what he is behind to try to destroy Israel. But the earth comes to the help of the woman. The earth opens its mouth, swallows up the river the dragon pours from its mouth. And then the dragon became furious with the woman, went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who are those? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. These are the tribulation saints, people who come to faith in Jesus Christ from among the nations in that tribulation period. So this is an angry conflict that's described. I gotta stop here. But folks, listen, the story of humanity has been a story of kingdoms in conflict. And what you find here is really the explanation behind that conflict. The reason for earthly conflict is because of a conflict between light and darkness. And no matter how bad things may get in the world around us, no matter the circumstances, we can be full of joy in knowledge of the fact that the child who was born to the woman 
the seed of the woman has overcome the world and he's victorious and the proof of that is his own death, resurrection and ascension. You may feel like the enemy has you surrounded. You consider the state of things in the world, you may feel like the forces of evil have us surrounded. There's disease and sin and oppression and death. We're wondering what kind of world our children are going to inherit. But let me tell you what you can tell them. The dragon's been defeated by the lamb. He's been defeated by the lamb. And that's our hope. And let me tell you, that that lamb is going to reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. Would you stand with me for prayer tonight? Our Father and our God, as we bow, Lord, there's so much we don't understand and so much that we want to understand. Lord, help us understand the big picture, not get lost in the weeds with all of the details that you've not given us dates and that kind of thing. That's not what we're looking for. That's not what we're to be about, Lord. But the big picture is the Lamb of God is victorious and the time is coming when he will return and establish his kingdom upon the earth. And until that time, we're still going to experience these kingdoms in conflict with the sinful kingdom of man under the influence of the evil one, the dragon, even though he's been defeated Ultimately, the time is coming when he's going to be chained, bound, and cast into the pit itself. And the kingdom of our Lord will come and be established upon the earth, a kingdom of righteousness. And our prayer is, even so come, Lord Jesus. But even now, Lord, we're sent into the world to be ambassadors for the kingdom. The church is intended to be a missionary outpost in a hostile environment an aroma of heaven. And Lord, may we be that right here. And God, as we are scattered, the rest of the week we'll have opportunities, Lord, to love people and to point people to the hope of Jesus. And may we be discerning. And we make our prayer tonight in Jesus' precious name. Amen.